This evening's talk <clears throat> is about equanimity, the balance and the equipoise in the mind, a living with the heart of greatness, even in times of stress, uncertainty, and turbulence. Here in Taos, we have what is considered to be a sacred mountain. It's one amongst many mountains that surround the Taos Valley, of which we are sitting in the midst of in this very moment. This sacred mountain is actually within the Pueblo, the village of the Tiwa Indians that sits on the north end of the town of Taos. And this particular mountain is sacred to the Tiwa people, and it's also a sacred symbol for many Taosenos. I have the very good fortune to be able to look out at it and take it in, in every season, any time of the day or night, any time of the year, as it's very clearly visible from where I live. This mountain, any mountain, just simply sits where it is. The sun shines on it, rain and hail fall on it, snow covers it, lightning strikes it, fires sometimes rage on it, all sorts of life forms are born and die on it, living out their particular life patterns on and with the mountain. And the mountain remains unshakable. It remains unwavering. The mountain of radical acceptance. The mountain of impartiality. The mountain of equanimity. The mountain itself is a live energy. A lively energy. But only exists in relationship to all of the myriad, lively, constantly changing energies that constitute it. The mountain appropriately sustains and supports the activity that it's intricately and intimately connected to. The mountain of equanimity doesn't cling on. It isn't averse or attached to anything. We might say that it lets life live through it, closing off to nothing, holding on to nothing. And all of this happens with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. And so begins our exploration of upekka, the Pali word for equanimity. Equanimity is a very powerful force in our practice and a very powerful force in the whole of our life. In the Buddhist teachings, it's included as one of the ten paramis, one of the ten perfections. It's also one of the four Brahma-vihara is one of the four divine abidings, metta, uh, unconditional kindness, love, upekka, or, uh, karuna, unconditional compassion, mudita, empathetic, um, or uh, appreciative joy, and upekka, equanimity. It's also one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And these are mindfulness, just a review, mindfulness, investigation of states, effort energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And it's also one of the two jhana factors that are present in the fourth jhana. And these two factors are ikagata, which is one-pointedness, and equanimity. 
Upeka was the final factor to come into maturity before Gautama Buddha attained full awakening, before he attained full enlightenment. As the about-to-be Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree that now famous night. And he was sitting there with an evenness and balance in his relaxed and powerful presence. Sitting there with the amazing grace of impartiality and balance. Seeing things clearly within his perfectly concentrated and mindful mind. And relinquishing, letting go. Relinquishing every attachment to all formations of body and mind. And then breaking through to the great awakening. Breaking through to the complete end of suffering. The Buddha described what he called six-limbed equanimity meaning equanimity in relationship to what comes in at each of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and the mind door. This six-limbed equanimity was described as the equanimity of one whose afflictive states, or cankers, as the Buddha often called them, have been destroyed. (coughs) Destroyed temporarily, as happens through the development of concentration and and more profoundly in the deep concentration of jhana and then eventually destroyed completely, finally, as occurs in the completion of vipassana practice. And this being who abides in the nat- then abides in the natural state of purity in relationship to de- desirable and undesirable objects that come into focus at any of the six sense doors. And some words from the Buddha. Here a bhikkhu, a yogi, a meditator, whose cankers are destroyed, is neither overjoyed nor distraught on seeing a visible object with the eye, hearing an audible sound with the ear, and then he goes on smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. She or he dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. Equanimity is the fearlessness the great strength and ease of the mind, of the heart, to remain centered and unmoved in the midst of it all. The literal translation of upeka is onlooking. Equanimity looks on at the occurrence of physical and mental pleasure and pain. By, making, by maintaining a neutral stance, a neutral mode, by staying in the center, staying in the middle, watching things as they arise, seeing them clearly, on looking, seeing them fear, fear, fairly, without favoritism and without bias, without partiality. So one attitude or attribute of equanimity itself as it's described in the realm of feeling, of Vedna, is neither painful nor pleasant feeling. We could say that equanimity is the equipoise, the balance or the equilibrium between the opposing forces in the mind of the desired and the undesired. This equipoise of equanimity offsets the weightiness of greed and the weightiness of aversion. It's that point of balance in the middle of the seesaw of life. 
the mind, the heart doesn't move towards, nor does it move away. I remember uh, as a young child that I really loved to find that point of balance when I was playing on what we called the seesaw or the teeter-totter with another child. Both of us would be suspended in our teeter-totter seat, perfectly balanced in mid-air. It was a kind of a thrilling moment or a few seconds. And there was always a certain kind of happy and almost breathtaking feeling inside me in the moments when this, when this happened. The poet T.S. Eliot said it beautifully. He said, At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. This still point of equanimity is a place of protection, while at the same time being an experience of great spaciousness and a great strength of mind and heart. The Buddha used the metaphor of putting a spoonful of salt into a cup of water. Because of the very small container, the water will be extremely salty, quite harsh, and undrinkable. On the other hand, if we put a spoonful of salt into a large body of water the size of the Rio Grande River, the largest river here in New Mexico, it, of course, won't have the same effect because of the large amount of water, because of the great spaciousness, because of the great wateriness that the salt is put into. And as we all know, life is quite salty at times. It's just how it is. One aspect of the development of equanimity is about creating the spaciousness of mind and heart with which we can meet and look on at all of life's everyday experiences, as well as all of the subtleties of internal and external phenomena that we come to see and to know through our practice. To look on with balance, to look on with equipoise, with the heart of greatness, as it's sometimes called. And what, with what is called in the sutta in relationship to equanimity as a factor of enlightenment to look on with specific neutrality. So what does this mean, specific neutrality? It means that whatever states of consciousness are present, including at times the three other immeasurable or divine abidings, metta, karuna, and mudita, the other six enlightenment factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, and concentration, and the various wholesome and beautiful states that are developing uh, and arise with our concentration and mindfulness-based practices. So, specific neutrality, meaning they are all met, they are all experienced and seen, looked on at evenly through the mind of equanimity. The function of equanimity is to inhibit partiality. And so upekka manifests as neutrality. There's a wonderful little book of teachings from Zen Master Dogen with commentary by Uchiyama Roshi 
and it's called How to Cook Your Life, where Dogen uses the work of the monastery cook, the tenzo, uh, in, uh, and our relationship to food to teach us, in this case, about equanimity. And we, of course, can bring, uh, bring this teaching immediately close, right here and now, in relationship to our cook and the food here in retreat, our amazing Tenzo Amy. And also bring this teaching into our life when we're back home. And this is from Dogen. Handle a single leaf of a green in such a way that it manifests the body of the Buddha. This in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf. This is a power you cannot grasp with your rational mind. It operates freely according to the situation in a most natural way. At the same time, this power functions in our lives to clarify and settle activities and is beneficial to all living beings. A dish is not necessarily superior because you've prepared it with choice ingredients, nor is a soup inferior because you've made it with ordinary greens. When handling and selecting greens, do so wholeheartedly, with a pure mind and without trying to evaluate their quality, in the same way in which you would prepare a splendid feast. In practicing the Dhamma or the Dharma, delicious and ordinary tastes are the same and not two. There's an old saying, the mouth of a monk, the mouth of a yogi, is like an oven. Just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and dried cow dung, uh, of course during Dogen's time there was no uh, natural gas or propane or electricity, so they used dried cow dung, burned dried cow dung, Um, So just as an oven burns both sandalwood for incense and dried cow dung for cooking without distinction, our mouths should be the same. There should be no distinction between delicious food and food which is plain and simple. We should be satisfied with whatever we receive. So how does one look on at the mind with equanimity? What contributes to this looking on in this way? What contributes to this capacity of relating to all things with equanimity? So a simple example in relationship to our practice. We sit and we find that maybe the mind is tranquil serene and this is known and we recognize that the focusing power of the mind (coughs) concentration is evenly and repeatedly connecting with whatever the object of attention is the mind isn't listless nor is it agitated but rather it's interested and appropriately energized At those times, there isn't any interest in or any necessity for exerting or restraining or encouraging the mind in any way. In our practice, just simply and clearly recognizing and knowing without attachment that this is what's occurring, that these factors of mind are all in place for a brief or maybe for a longer period of time is actually something that contributes to the blossoming of the state or the blossoming of the factor of equanimity, thus contributing to our capacity to relate to all things, to all phenomena with equipoise and composure. During the time and the culture of the Buddha, his metaphor for the mind uh, when it's in this mode was this. One is like the charioteer 
who looks on with equanimity on horses progressing evenly. Well, much more likely in our case, uh, the metaphor might be one is like the driver of a car who looks on with equanimity in a car that's running along evenly when it's set on cruise control. We're able to see and know, we're able to take in what's in front of us and what's passing by, to take it in with ease. This quality, this factor of mind allows the process of practice, the development of concentration and also the progress of insight to unfold without getting caught, without getting mired by the habits of mind that can stop things up, such as the various habits of clinging and attachment and identification that can create a block, that can create a tangle in the flow of the process. Within the ambiance of equanimity, even the subtlety of the habits of attachment and identification, aversion, and the comparing mind can be seen, known, and let go, allowing concentration and understanding to blossom and to deepen and to eventually mature. As we practice, we begin to taste equanimity along with the arising of other wholesome mental states such as patience, confidence, metta, and the development of vichara and piti and sukha, ikagata, the one-pointedness. And as each of you know, I'm sure, (laughs) that until equanimity is truly matured, we can lose and regain our balance over and over and over again. Quite a number of years ago, for the whole of the last two weeks of uh, a long retreat, many months of retreat that I was sitting, I practiced equanimity. And I practiced it in the way that it's practiced as a Brahma-vihara, one of the sublime abidings, by silently repeating one equanimity phrase over and over and over again, day in, day out. First directing it to myself, and then on through all of the same categories that are used for metta practice. And this is the phrase that I used. I am the heir of my kama, meaning I am the heir of all my deeds, all my actions of mind, speech, and body. My happiness or suffering depends upon my actions, not upon my wishes for myself. Well, by the end of those two weeks of that constant equanimity practice, uh, there seemed to be quite a deep and quiet sense of balance a sense of evenness and neutrality in the mind and the heart. A day or two before the end of the retreat, the thought came up, oh, there's equanimity here. seems to be a fairly deep and abiding equanimity. And then the next thought came was, I wonder if there's an equanimity test. (laughs) If this was a Zen session, Any good Zen teacher would do something creatively startling to check my equanimity. But this is a Vipassana retreat, and Vipassana teachers don't do things like that. And then the thought just disappeared. Well, later that day, that same day, I was startled uh, in a true Vipassana fashion, we could say, an equanimity test Vipassana style. I got a note signed by one of my uh, equanimity teachers. Although actually the note was from all five of the teachers who were teaching that retreat. And it said, we would like you to give 
the dana talk. We would like you to give the generosity talk to the yogis tomorrow. Well, I was not a Dhamma teacher at that point at all, and I had no ambition to teach the Dhamma. It was quite a note. (laughs) And for a moment, uh, equanimity flew right out the window, and my heart felt like it stopped. And the old habit of fear flew right in. And the words came inside, I can't, I can't do this now. I've been silent for so many weeks, so deeply into practice. I can't get up in front of all my fellow yogis and speak. It's totally impossible. I can't do it. And then the heart, the mind relaxed and really saw what had just occurred. And then the thought came in, ah, yeah, this is my equanimity test. And I can do it, and I really want to do it. And then, the next moment, a tremendous flood of gratitude came into the mind and the heart. Gratitude for the teachers, and gratitude for the retreat center staff. Gratitude for the teachings. Gratitude for the practice. And just as suddenly as it had gone, equanimity was back. And what I was being asked to do felt like the most natural thing in the world to be doing at that time. So yes, until Upeka has matured, we lose and we regain our balance and equipoise again and again and again, this balance and equipoise of equanimity. Upeka manifests as quieting fear, quieting boredom, dislike, resentment, and the self-judgment that can manifest maybe as guilt, uh, disapproval, not being good enough. It also manifests as quieting liking, pride, attachment, and the judgment of approval in relationship to what we think of as ourself, as me, as my experiences. And of course, equanimity also manifests in quieting attachment, the attachment and the fear that comes up in relationship to others. Along the way of our practice, when equanimity is, has arisen and is developing, in those moments, fear and resentment, attachment, identification, and the judgments of uh, approval and disapproval subside. Within the clear space of a momentary or longer really true neutrality, there's nothing for greed and nothing for aversion to stick to when they start to arise. Equanimity fails when it produces what's called the equanimity of unknowing, which the Buddha called worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance. So what does this mean, worldly-minded indifference produced by ignorance? It occurs when we don't clearly see or don't clearly see through the object of our attention with the focused attention of a concentrated (coughs) mindfulness rooted in kind-heartedness. And instead are blindly seduced by and swept away in the happenings of life, including some of the inner experiences that happen within our meditation practice. And seemingly being equanimous with it all. (coughs) Seemingly. This isn't upeka. It's what the Buddha called indifference based in or (coughs) produced by ignorance. (coughs) And some words from the Buddha. (coughs) On seeing a visible object with the eye or in relationship to 
uh, contact through any of the six sense doors. Equanimity arises in the foolish, infatuated, ordinary man or woman, in the untaught, ordinary woman or man who hasn't seen or conquered his or her limitations, who hasn't understood or conquered future results, meaning kama, karma, who is unperceiving of danger in relationship to attachment or aversion. Such equanimity doesn't see through the visible object. Such so-called equanimity is actually worldly-minded indifference based in ignorance. The Buddha was very often wonderfully direct, very, very straightforward, and very succinct in his teaching. So a personal story about this. When I first began living in Taos, I was quick to uh, notice uh, that there were so many, many beautiful handcrafted things in store windows. And at times, I would get quite infatuated with what I was seeing. And sometimes getting, I would get caught in the delusion of seeming need, that I needed what I was seeing. Uh, Or even worse, (laughs) that very painful contraction of the must-have mind. I must have that, whatever that was. So I saw the folly and the pain in that, and I decided to do a practice with it. So over time, took some months, I would walk along the street and look in the shop windows and watch the process of my mind and my heart. And eventually, I was able to just appreciate the beauty of what I was seeing without wanting it, without feeling like I needed it. And with great appreciation for the amazing creative capacities of the human beings who made all of the objects, these beautiful handmade objects that I was seeing. And I'm sure that every one of us has experienced the pretense of equanimity within ourselves in the midst of greed, in the midst of dislike, in the midst of boredom or resentment or anger or fear or disappointment or in the midst of attraction and desire. It's this glossing over the Ignorance, the ignoring (coughs) in relationship to these states, really it's about pretending to ourselves the pretense of equanimity. It's that, oh, it's all just fine, really. Just fine. I'm fine. It's all fine. It doesn't really matter. Attitude. Which can often be accompanied by a slight or maybe not so slight moving away from a contraction, or maybe an inner sense of grasping, moving towards, clinging, wanting to grab, that we certainly may not be aware of. And this, of course, is not, it's not equanimity, but it's actually indifference, or ignorance, excuse me, uh, which is uh, very much rooted in delusion. And it often shows up as indifference, a kind of false equanimity, which is often called the near enemy of equanimity, indifference masquerading as upekka. And I think we all, each of us, also know from our own experience that when we're inflamed with greed or dislike or fear or grief or resentment, It's extremely difficult, or it just isn't possible, actually, to look on at those moments with a really true equanimity. Upeka is based in an attentive, 
clear presence of mind, not on dullness and not on indifference. And it's not a kind of casual passing mood. It's also not produced by exertion. It's the result, it's one of the fruits of our practice, the fruit of training the mind, of training the heart through the development and the blossoming of the factors of mindfulness, concentration, a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, loving-kindness, compassion, and varying degrees of investigation. A true equanimity is able to meet all of the vicissitudes of life, these flip-flops, we could say, that we encounter in our mind in relationship to what are called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame or distinction and, or disrepute or disrespect or disregard that come our way throughout our whole life. True equanimity is able to meet all of these sometimes harsh feeling experiences or sometimes what feel like tests, harsh feeling tests. And it's quickly able to regenerate its strength from our inner resources, the resources that have been developed through our diligent practice. And from the Buddha, from the Sutta Nipata, develop the mind of equilibrium. You will always be getting praise and blame. But do not let either affect the poise of the mind. Follow the calmness, the absence of pride. There's an amazing practice um, that I've been told was and maybe uh, still is occasionally practiced by the Hopi Indians. I certainly don't recommend this practice. But we can take it in as a metaphor for us in relationship to the cultivation and manifestation of the power of the fearlessness and the evenness of mind and heart and the protection that is one of the great strengths of equanimity. This is from the Book of the Hopi by Frank Waters. There were all kinds of snakes. Rattlesnakes, big bull snakes, racers, sidewinders, gopher snakes, about 60 all tangled on the floor. The singing stirred them. They moved in one direction, then another, looking over all the men in the circle. The men never moved. They just kept singing with a kind expression on their faces. The snakes began to roll in the sand, taking their bath. Then a big yellow rattler moved slowly towards an old man, singing with his eyes closed, climbed up his crossed leg, coiled in front of his breech cloth, and went to sleep. Pretty soon this old man had five or six snakes crawling all over his body, raising their head to look raising their heads to look at his closed eyes and peaceful face, then going to sleep. It showed that they had found their friend, looking within the heart of this one on whose body they chose to rest. This is the way snakes show who are good and kind men with pure hearts. True equanimity will possess the power of protection and also a wholesome resistance in relationship to the mind, the heart getting seduced by and caught up in states of fear, greed, and aversion. And equanimity also possesses the power of renewing itself, but only if it's deeply rooted 
in a growing insight into the true nature of things. There are two particular understandings that I'd like to spend a little bit of time exploring with you this evening in that they, as they develop along the way of our practice and eventually ripen into insight, are really the root of equanimity. And the first of these is our growing clarity and understanding how all of the vicissitudes, the ups and downs, the eight worldly winds, how they originate, how they come to be. And this is the understanding of kama or karma which we certainly explored in some depth last evening. So this evening I'm just going to review a little bit of it and uh, maybe say a couple things that I didn't say last night. We could say that everything happens and the ease or the dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings in life internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind, due to our motivations and very important and our and due to our responses or our reactions to phenomena, not due to our hopes and our wishes for ourselves, and not due ultimately to some other person or some outer or antagonistic or seemingly strange or foreign world. And I suggested in the talk last night that you remember Sue Ann's response to the heckling that was going on in the gym at Leed during, uh, before the basketball game began. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear, which I mentioned. So it's one of the roots of equanimity. When we begin to see that we really only meet ourselves, really we only meet our own mind in relationship to everything that happens within us and around us. What is there to fear? This then is an opening, it's an opportunity for the heart, the mind, to begin to relax. And we begin to really know that we can change our mind. We can change our mind. We're not, in fact, trapped on the karmic wheel running around and around and around. This is the chance that our practices of sila, samadhi, and panya afford us. Changing our mind. But of course, as each one of us have experienced, fear, uncertainty, and insecurity certainly arise along the way of our life. And at the same time, as we traverse this path, we really clearly begin to see and to know that the refuge where fear can be dispelled is through our good deeds, as I talked about with some, at some length last night. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. And so we gain the strength, the great strength uh, of the evenness and balance and patience of the heart of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole as we engage in this refuge of doing good, doing good, 
doing good deeds. Along the way of our practice, with the development and the blossoming of relative equanimity, we find that we, in fact, have the strength, more and more able, have more and more strength to endure when that's necessary, when we need to endure. And to see very clearly when that's what's called for. And we have the possibility, growing possibility, of not continuing to fall into the same holes over and over and over again. We have the possibility and we see clearly the option to begin to walk down a different street, so to say. The understanding of karma or kama can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering. As we more clearly begin to see our own craving and delusion and our habitual tendencies to create and engage in situations that strain and that sap our strength and sap our healthy resistance. There's a wholesome disgust, as the Buddha called it. A wholesome disgust arises. And our motivation to practice in order to free ourselves from craving and delusion is strengthened. The fruit of deliverance of a deep and clear experience and understanding of equanimity is the escape from greed. And the Pali word for this is tanha. And it's, it's translated as insatiable thirst. The escape from the insatiable thirst. Tanha. Which we all have on some level, on many levels actually, until we don't have it anymore. It starts to weaken through our practice, that insatiable thirst. So this first insight or this first understanding that is the basis for equanimity is a growing understanding of kama. The second insight uh, that equanimity is based on is the teaching and the understanding of anatta, not self. So we'll explore this a bit this evening. So from this perspective, there's no one, there's no self performing any deeds, nor do the results affect a self. The fact is, or the truth is, that it's the delusion, it's the wrong view of a separate, solid, static self, a separate me that creates suffering and that disturbs equanimity. So some examples, everyday examples. If we claim ownership, meaning this is mine, this is me, this is who I am, and we hang on to that really tightly, the vicissitudes of life will always throw us into the realm of suffering. So for instance... If this or that aspect of our personality, some particular quality of ours, is criticized, is blamed, or it's criticized or blamed, we think, well, I'm blamed. I'm blamed. We feel blamed. And equanimity is shaken. When we receive approval or praise for something that that we've done, we think, well, I've been praised. I'm, I'm definitely a success now. Equanimity is disturbed with that. If this or this, this or that work that we've, that we've done, um, or some aspect of our practice that we've engaged in, doesn't succeed, or isn't praised in the way we want it to be, one thinks, ah, oh, my practice has failed. My work has failed. Or maybe I, I failed. And equanimity is shaken. If wealth or 
a loved one is lost, one might think, what's mine is gone. And certainly equanimity is shaken. The unwavering mountain of equanimity is always shaken in the delusion with the identification of me, mine, and I. As understanding deepens and the heart opens, there's an easing, slowly an easing, of the constrictive feelings and the thoughts based in self-centeredness. Unshakable equanimity is established by giving up, by relinquishing all possessive thoughts, the thoughts of mine. Of course, with that thought itself, maybe being quite a daunting thought. And this becomes, actually, for those of you doing concentration concentration practice in this retreat, that becomes quite clear through the practice of concentration. And so we begin with the small things, which are easy to detach oneself from. And we gradually, slowly, gently work up to the possessions and the, the goals and the identifications that we so tenaciously cling to. The first time that I taught at the Forest Refuge at the Insight Meditation Society was for two months. And I was the very first visiting teacher there. And I was there long enough to really settle in. Uh, uh, And yet again, uh, again and again actually, uh, there was the awareness that the house that I was staying in certainly wasn't mine. And it came about in small, simple, and sometimes surprising ways. When I first got there, there was no telephone in the house. So I lobbied for a phone, which sometimes really felt like it was for me. I wanted a telephone in the house. I needed a telephone in the house. And so there was a degree of tension. There was a degree of stress in this. Uh, But... In truth, the phone was, potential of a phone, was for many, many, many others who would be using this phone or this house, that house, over many, many years. So after lobbying for a while for a phone, at one point I was told that it was okayed, that a phone would be, would be put into the house. But when that would happen was unknown at that So at that point, there was a very quick letting go. And really, no more thoughts about it occurred. I relaxed. And I truly felt that it really didn't matter if the phone arrived while I was staying there in the house or not. Because it wasn't really for me. It wasn't my phone going to be my phone. And then, on again, in that same two months of teaching there, as the first... uh, uh, visiting teacher, it was decided to purchase a rug for the living room of that same house. There was no rug or carpeting at all in the house. So Jeannie, who was the housekeeper at the time, brought the rug catalog over for us to decide which rug to order. Well, it clearly wasn't a rug for me. It wasn't for my house. We were choosing for anyone. We were choosing for everyone, actually. And I noticed that it was such a different experience in the heart with this, not that subtle contraction of something being mine or being for me. There was an openness and a spaciousness. There was no contraction, no clinging in the choosing, and it was a lot more fun that way. So the small things at first that we think are ours and working up to giving up or letting go or relinquishing uh, other stickier thoughts of self. Beginning to relinquish the identification with some of the qualities that we might be identified with as who we think we are, our personality. It's the thought of these being who I am that we relinquish. The clinging thought of these being who I am that we give up, that we let go of. And beginning with small aspects 
of our personality. Qualities of seeming minor importance. And very slowly and very gently with care, through our practice, working up to letting go of identification, in a sense practicing, we could say, detachment, in relationship to those emotions and aversions that we may regard as the center of our being. And also letting go of identification with the fruits that arise from our concentration and metta and insight practice. Ajahn Sumedho, the former abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, shares a really uh, wonderful way of practicing with this, or I think it's a wonderful way. With a particular, uh, when a particular um, habitual tendency of his shows up, and in this case he's talking about the critical mind, the judgmental mind, critical mind, he says, oh, there's my personality. Can our personality be impersonal? Can we relinquish our identity with this or that being who I am, being me? Including positive emotions or or aversions. And maybe even the specific gifts which we might regard and be identified with as the center of our being. As well as the wholesome and beautiful states that manifest through our practice. To whatever degree we abandon, to whatever degree we relinquish thoughts of mine, of me, of (coughs) I am, to whatever degree we forsake thoughts of self, equanimity will enter our heart. When we realize, when we really, truly come to know anything as void of a self, In those moments, how could it cause us any agitation due to lust or clinging or hatred or fear or grief? Thus the teaching and the practice of anatta is an important guide along the path to the possibility of perfect equanimity, our guide along the path to liberation. Equanimity, the unshakable balance of mind and heart, is rooted in insight. The first understanding, the first insight being that of kama, and the second being anatta. Equanimity is also seeded and grows along the way of our samatha practice, our concentration practice, and metta practice, and blossoms in a very profound way with concentration practice as the deeper states of concentration, jhana, occur, and particularly when one accesses the fourth jhana. The heart, the mind of specific neutrality, equanimity, it isn't cold or heartless or dull, It doesn't manifest out of an emotional emptiness, but really out of a fullness or a completeness of connection and understanding. At some point along the way of our practice, equanimity will evolve from being relative equanimity to absolute equanimity. In the progress of insight, when equanimity is strong and fulfilled and mature, concentration and insight, concentration and understanding, occur coupled together without either one exceeding the other. Along with and in balance with all of the other factors of enlightenment, with all of these occurring at that point, with what has been called a single taste. 
the single taste of awakening, the single taste of liberation. Liberation from the kilesas, from the cankers. Deliverance from suffering. At that point, there's insight knowledge into the dangers of the afflictive emotions, the defilements. And insight knowledge into the advantages of purification. Insight, understanding at this point, produces what the Buddha called a satisfiedness, a purifiedness, a clarifiedness within one's heart and mind, which is manifesting due to one's capacity for onlooking equanimity. And the Buddha spoke about this as absolute equanimity or unworldly or holy equanimity. And in the words of the Buddha, just as the streams of the world enter the great ocean and all the waters of the sky rain into it, but not an increase or decrease of the great ocean is seen, such is the nature of holy equanimity. The equanimity of an awakened one is unshakable because it's absolute. It's absolute simply because it clings to nothing. And this is our possibility. As an aid, uh, as nutriment, for the arising and the development of equanimity, the Buddha and the commentaries, the sutta commentaries, offer us some very specific directions. So these are some of those very specific directions. And this is from the Buddha first. We're told to listen to, approach, attend to, to recollect, and go forth after monks, nuns, and laypersons who are accomplished in virtue, sila, concentration, insight, and who have the knowledge and vision of liberation. It's said that hearing the Dhamma from such persons is helpful. We're told to dwell mindfully, to clearly discern states, and that if we discern states with care and with wisdom, our energy will be aroused without slacking. And when this happens, a spiritual joy is aroused and developed. And that when one's mind and heart is uplifted with spiritual joy, the body will become tranquil. When the body becomes tranquil, one's mind becomes tranquil. We're told that for one whose body is tranquil and who is quietly happy in heart and mind, the mind is easily concentrated. And that when when concentration develops and deepens, one looks on, with equanimity at the mind that is concentrated. And the commentaries to the suttas tell us that there are some particular conditions in the whole of our life that will help towards the arising and the development of equanimity. So I'll share a few of these with you. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards living beings. Developing and maintaining neutrality towards inanimate objects. Not spending a lot of time with possessive people. Associating with people who maintain neutrality towards beings and inanimate objects. And lastly, to make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of equanimity. And as we practice, we come to know when equanimity is in us. And we know when it's absent. And we begin to know how it arises and how its development comes about. So we practice here in retreat and at home in the midst 
of our daily lives. And we practice with sincerity and with diligence. As awakening beings, we practice with aspiration and with determination. And because of all this, it's really inevitable that concentration, mindfulness, and the all the wholesome factors of mind and heart, as well as the liberating insights, will sprout, will sprout and blossom and eventually mature within us. It's our kama, we could say. So I'd like to close the talk this evening with two short pieces from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. Whose mind stands like a mountain, steady, is not perturbed, unattached to things that arouse attachment, unangered by things that provoke anger. With her, his mind, when her or his mind is cultivated thus, how can suffering come to her? How can suffering come to him? And the second Udana piece. For one who clings, motion exists, meaning the movement of the mind. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there's no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor any place between the two. This, in truth, is the end of suffering. And let's sit together for just a moment.